in his chapter on religion and the gospel, in his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes, Christianity teaches that our main problem is sin. What then is the solution? Even if you accept the Christian diagnosis of the problem, there doesn't seem to be any particular reason why one must look only to Christianity for the solution. You may say, why must the solution be Jesus and Christianity? Why can't some other religion do as well? Or just my own personal faith in God? The answer to that is that there is a profound and fundamental difference between the way that other religions tell us to seek salvation and the way described in the gospel of Jesus. <clears throat> Religion, in, the, in this sense, could be defined the way Keller does, uh, as seeking salvation through our own moral effort. Different religions, they recognize the problem of sin. They may res- describe that variously, but they, they would prescribe the solution to that as some set of rules. Now, this is what you do to combat what is bad. This is how you do what's good. Solution's a a way of thinking, a moral code. And it it ultimately is just a human strategy. The Bible doesn't point to a human strategy for our solution. It points to a person. So, though we don't agree on the solution, many of us, many religions, different religions, still see this fundamental problem that they're trying to address. And Keller, he used the example of uh, Robert Lewis Stevenson's book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And in that book, Dr. Jekyll, he recognizes these two sides to himself, one good, one evil. And he believes that he can, if he can just dissociate himself between those two into good and then evil, then he can have a better existence, better, better reality. Basically, evil person could just go on and do the evil, not be bothered by the good, (laughs) convicted by the good, and the good person can just actually do good and not be tempted by the evil. So he creates this potion that allows them to transform into one or the other, back and forth basically. And, And so he does that, but the problem comes to be how bad his bad side, Mr. Hyde, Edward Hyde, is. And so Becomes problematic, he he stops being able to control his transformations. Mr. Hyde just starts transforming. And so he resolves at that point he's going to stop transforming into Mr. Hyde. And he has some success. He even wants to make up for some of the things that Mr. Hyde's done. But something happened to him while he was sitting in the park one day and thinking about the good he had done. He describes this event. He says, I smiled comparing myself with other men, comparing my act of goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. At that very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, horrid nausea, the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down. I was once more Edward Hyde. And many of us think we can, we can have a human strategy, a way to figure out how to master the evil within us. We have an idea of being able to conquer it. But the question is, can we do anything that provides true victory, true deliverance? Or is the evil going to win out? In Paul's day, there were authors that talked about this struggle that was going on inside of people. And, and so one author, Roman poet Ovid, he tells a story about gold, the golden fleece. He tells that in his Metamorphoses book and 
he describes this inner turmoil, turmoil going on in the king's daughter, Media, because she knows she should be loyal to her father, but she also, she really likes this guy named Jason, and she, she really wants to help him get this golden fleece away from her father. And she ends up giving this soliloquy, this, this monologue, really, about what's going on inside of her. And she sounds a lot like what Paul says in our passage. So as she's struggling over this, she says, Oh, wretched one, drive out these flames that you feel, if you can. If I could, I should be more reasonable. But some strange power holds me back against my will. Desire counsels me one way, reason another. I see and approve the better course, but I follow the worse. The solution to this situation that we find ourselves in, according to the Greek and Roman philosophers in Paul's day or leading up to Paul, was usually just some sort of enlightenment. You need to be educated, learn about the situation that you're in so that you can overcome this problem. And really, the Jewish rabbis had the same idea. They recognized these two impulses inside of you, one good, one evil, that's vying for control. And their solution, you might even guess what it is, was to study and apply the Mosaic law. That's exactly what Paul's been talking about in chapter 7. He's been talking about the Mosaic law. And what Paul says is that the law is not actually part of the solution. It's not what God provided for salvation from this situation. It was given to Israel while they were still under the power of sin. And so in that state, all the law could accomplish, all that it could produce was death. So at this point in chapter 7, Paul recognizes somebody could ask, did that which is good then bring death to me? He's asking, is the Mosaic law to blame for this death that I experienced for my sin? But notice the way that he refers to the law. When he asks that question, it's that which is good, which is a reference to the last thing he said in the last section that we we looked at. There he said, so the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So right as soon as he formulates the question, we know what his answer is going to be. Is this the the Mosaic Law's fault? No. By no means, he says. And then what he does is he explains his answer. And so Paul goes goes on to explain why the Mosaic Law is incapable of delivering us from the power of sin. And in that explanation, what he does is he explains why any form of enlightenment is incapable of, of delivering us from the evil within us. So we're going to look at the impact that this passage has on us in our situation. And what we find is that this, what Paul says here, is why religion is no match for sin. No match for the sin within us. By religion, again, I mean any human strategy to try to conquer evil behavior. Here's the reason why human strategies fail, because good rules can't produce good in a flesh ruled by sin. That's the main idea that Paul is describing in Romans 7, 13 through 25. Mr. Hyde is always going to find a way. There's no way to conquer sin by human effort. Sin's in charge. And so good rules can't produce good in a flesh ruled by sin. And so you could turn to Romans 7. Again, it's on page 887 if you haven't already done so. Romans 7, again, page 887 in the Pew Bible. And Paul starts with this summary of the last section, really. He's, he's summarizing what he's already said. He explains that it wasn't the Mosaic Law's fault that death was produced. He says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. This good law 
that God had given his people. It was used by sin to produce death, to produce behavior that leads to death and not life. Now, God still had a reason, a good reason, why he gave the law in this situation when the law couldn't actually rescue people. He explained that in verses 7 through 12, where we were a couple weeks ago. And he really just summarizes it again here. He says that God did that. He gave the law in order that sin might be shown to be sin. God used the law to reveal sin, to show us what it was. Not only that, but he did it so that sin through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And what he's getting at there is what we saw a few weeks ago with how sin is replicated through the law. Even just giving the commandment not to covet produces coveting in our sinful existence. So God's commands, really, what they do is they reveal the depths of sin. They reveal, we have a deep desire to cross the lines that God, God makes. We have a deep desire to rebel against him. Sin is more terrible than we think it is. And God used the Mosaic law to show us that. So even though the Mosaic law is good, it has no power in itself to actually produce goodness in us. And and Paul explains this basic incongruity. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Mosaic law is spiritual. Because all scripture is inspired by the spirit. The law was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we're not spiritual. We don't have an inherent connection to the Spirit because we've sinned. We're separated from God. So our existence is not spiritual. Paul describes our existence as fleshly. Our basic human condition is fleshly. That's our natural state. And in that state, we don't mix with the Spirit. Because the spirit is sold under sin. Sin's described here as having purchased us in our fallen state. It's our master, as Paul's already told us. And so the spiritual law and then our sinful flesh, they're like oil and water. The law contains good rules, but we're ruled by sin. So these good rules cannot produce good in us. Good rules can't produce good in flesh Ruled by sin. So what Paul goes on to do in this passage, he explains this. He's going to draw this, explain what he means by that idea. And there's, there's really four reasons that we're going to look at for why good rules can't produce good in a flesh ruled by sin. And those four reasons are this. Reasons are that rules can help us recognize that they are good, but they can also help us recognize that we are not good. And rules cannot overcome what already rules us and then finally rules cannot provide any ultimate hope for change and so even the best rules rules given by god himself they cannot produce good in a flesh ruled by sin and so first of all paul explains what god's rules have done god's good rules they ha- they can help us recognize that they are good and they do that when we're exposed to god's commands and in this context he's talking about the mosaic law and a jewish person exposed to god's commands it's not, they don't see the goodness in them because they're able to do the good. They see the goodness in their failure. That's what Paul describes here. That's how they recognize that they're good. He, he explains by saying, I do not understand my own actions. He's saying, I, I can't approve of these actions. I can't acknowledge what I'm doing. And he tells us what he means. He says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Sounds very much like what Media said. She, she said, I see and approve the better course, but I follow the worst. There's something that he wants to do, but he doesn't do it. So, 
question we want to address at the beginning is, what is the situation Paul's describing? There's a lot of opinions about what Paul's describing here. There's two major choices. Either Paul is talking about himself now, in the present, after his conversion, or he's talking about himself before his conversion. Either he's talking about a description of a believer or a non-believer, an unbeliever. And it's really hard. When you look at this passage, there are reasons going both ways. So it's, it's hard to figure out which Paul is talking about. So what I think we need to do is we need to keep in mind what Paul has been saying. We don't need to separate this out from the rest of the chapter. Paul has been talking about the law and the Mosaic law. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, my, my understanding is that what Paul's talking about is he was identifying with his, his fathers who went to Mount Sinai, who received the law and then died in the wilderness. And that accounts for the past tense there in verses 7 through 12. Here he talks about being, it's the present tense. And the topic, though, hasn't changed. He's still talking about the Mosaic law, and he's been adamantly clear. The Christian, the believer, is not under the law now that Christ has come. And by his death and resurrection, rescued us from that state, freed us from the law. So he's talking about something in the present, but he's still, it's still very much a life under the law that he's describing. So what I, my understanding is that he's describing a Jewish person in the present. He's identifying with his people in the present who have God's law, which he experienced. They want to follow it. They see, though, in the law the solution to their sin problem. That's what Paul's arguing against here. The Mosaic law is not the solution. And he explains why that's the case. So it's, it's Paul's acquaintance with the Mosaic law, according to the context, that is why he wants to do something other than what he actually does. Paul doesn't mention the spirit here, doesn't mention a transformed life. It's the law that's shown him what he should do. And just like other Jewish people in his day would have said, he wants to do what the law says. Now, there's more to the story, and he's, he's going to show that. But an unconverted Jewish person in Paul's day could sincerely want to obey the law, even if they had a variety of reasons for why they wanted to do that. that but they would say this and, and really genuinely in their, in their heart of hearts be saying, yeah, I want to do what the law says. And Paul said that despite that desire, he did what he hated. And then he makes this point. He says, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. It's the very fact that I end up doing what I don't want to do that tells me, you know what, the law really is good. The law has shown me something good, and I see that when I do what's bad, because I know I want to do that good. So God's rules, they can help us recognize that that law, his law, his good rules, they are good. And he does that even through the attempts to follow them and fail. But there's more going on inside of a person that Paul explains in verse 17. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. We have to understand what we need to focus on is that Paul is not excusing himself the way that we often do. You know, when we're in a bad mood and we do something, snap at somebody, then we kind of gather ourselves and we say, I'm sorry, that wasn't me. It's not what Paul's doing here. What we're doing in that case is we're, we're kind of, we see the situation that, that we're in. You know, we're tired. We're, we're anxious. We're upset. And there's some external factor that's really the reason why we've done the wrong thing. It's not us. 
It's that external circumstance. That's not what Paul's doing here. That's not what he means. Instead, he's talking about the I that he's just referred to, who wants to obey the law. That part of him isn't operative. That I isn't the one acting. There's something else going on. So these rules have helped him see, on the one hand, that those rules, but they do something else. They, they also help him recognize that we are not good. The law is good. He can recognize that, but we're not. So he explains in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He brought the word flesh in, in verse 5 of this chapter, and, and what I explained there was that the flesh, it's a way to describe the state we're in, this fallen state that we're in. So Paul's explaining his situation. I think in saying that, he's saying this is the circumstance. He's in the flesh. He's not saying that he has the flesh and the spirit. Again, he doesn't mention the spirit. This is his fallen state. And in that fallen state, nothing good dwells in him. Nothing good. That's a hard pill to swallow. Nothing? Paul, really nothing good? need to remember what the rich young ruler, what Jesus said to the rich young ruler when he came up and asked him about what is good in Matthew 19. Jesus said, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Only God is good. We talked about this on Wednesdays uh, at our First Baptist Institute. Goodness is what God is. So we only know what is good by knowing God, because God is good. He's the standard of goodness. Humans have no inherent claim to goodness in ourselves. So the reality is when we think about goodness, we have to understand we were created in God's image to reflect his goodness. We were not created with an inherent goodness. We were created as image bearers to, like the moon, reflect the light of the sun. We're to reflect God's goodness, to see his goodness and reflect it. There's nothing in us that is actually good in and of itself. There's no goodness residing in our humanity. We were made to reflect God's goodness. So Paul demonstrates this beginning in the second part of verse 18. He says, I have the desire to do what's good or what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. So again, where did that desire come from? From the law. Perceive the good in the law, spiritual law, law in, in Inspired by the Spirit, it revealed what is right, or we could translate that what is good. It's normally translated that way, that word is. So again, there were Jewish people in Paul's day who, for a variety of reasons, wanted to do what the law said. They wanted to do what it said. They had a want to, but they could not do it. The flesh has no power in itself to do what the law says. Verse 19 Paul basically repeats verse 15, but he adds the words good and evil. So this is the problem. He knows the good that he should do. He even wants to do that good, but he does the evil that he doesn't want to do. Now, there's another way to say this, another way to get at this, where we could describe the other side equally as a desire. Paul does that in verse 5 of this chapter. He refers to sinful desires. Here, he refers to the same thing, but he just calls it sin. And so you have these two entities operating here, and he describes them in verse 20. Verse 20 really is just a summary of nearly an exact 
repetition of verses 16 through 17. He says, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. It's no longer the I who wants to obey the law, but the sinful desires that are just as much a part of me. So he's not, he's again, not saying it's not my fault. The point is that there is something that's in charge of us. And the part of us that's in charge is not the part that sees the law and says, yeah, I want to do what's right. It's sinful desires. These desires that are mastering him according to verse 14. What what Paul's doing is he's describing himself as under the power of sin. That's what he's describing in this part of chapter 7. And again, that's not what he describes as being true for believers. We've been rescued from that by Christ. So what does all this mean? Well, Paul's saying that just being instructed about what's right isn't sufficient. Greeks and the Romans were wrong. Rabbis were wrong. Any perspective that thinks that we have the power to rescue ourselves, to stop this sinful behavior, it's wrong. Our willpower to do what's right isn't strong enough. It's no match for sin. That's really what he goes on to explain. These good rules, again, they can help us see that the rules are good, but they help us see that we're not good. They can't produce good in us. And why is that? Because rules cannot overcome what's already ruling us. That's what he goes on to say in verses 21 and 23, or 223. And what he does here is he, he engages in this play on words using the word law. And what he does is... It makes a lot of sense when you you think about the way that he's already already talked about sin ruling us or sin being our master. Laws are enacted by rulers. We talk about the rule of law. So there's, there's overlap between saying that sin's our master and saying that sin has a law that we submit to. And so that's what he's talking about. He's talking about who's in charge. Who determines what we do? We have, we're in the flesh, in what Paul's saying here. As unbelievers in the flesh, we're slaves to sin. He can also say that sin rules us by its law. So you have two laws. God's law and sin's law in these verses. Verse 21 is really difficult to, to translate. number of different things going on into translating it the way the esv has it it's this law is the principle it describes there my understanding of this verse is he's saying that he's he's talking about the mosaic law still he's kind of summarizing the situation when it comes to the mosaic law what paul finds is that when i want to do right evil lies close at hand and again right there could be translated good often is so paul's saying just like he's been saying his experience of the mosaic law in the flesh is this Whenever he wants to do what is good, there's an evil present. And then he goes on to explain in verse 22. So here's him zeroing in on that idea. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I think this, this verse actually is the strongest uh, potential evidence for Paul to be talking about a state of a believer. Can, can anybody but a believer really delight in God's law? That's the question that many pose. Or, or when it talks about inner being, in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians, it seems like it's referring to a believer. Well, in chapter 2, Paul already described Jewish unbelievers as boasting in the law. 
And my understanding of that is that's not wrong. The issue is why they boasted in the law. But they boasted in the law. They had a confident joy in the law that you could describe as delight. The Old Testament describes this delighting in God's law. It's really just a synonym for wanting to do what the law says. So this is just really a repetition of what Paul's been saying. From a Jewish perspective, they want to do what the law says. And when he mentions the inner being of a believer in those other passages, he's just talking about a location. There's a location for believers and unbelievers. He refers to it here as this inner man, but also as the mind. It's the same location. So what he's saying is, on the one hand, there's this this joyful response to the law. Saying, yes, God, you told me what I need to do. There's a positive response. They want to do that. They want to obey. But there's something else going on. Another law, he says, at work in his fleshly existence. At work in his members. So there's two laws. In his mind, he reads the law of God. His mind is there. It's influencing him. Do that law. But then deep within himself, there's another law. And it's directing him in another way. The other law he, he describes as the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he describes this indwelling sin, this other law, and he uses, again, battle imagery, war imagery. Indwelling sin, that it, it applies, it exerts its law on a person, and it wages war against the law that Paul's been thinking about, the Mosaic law. So when Paul, under this state of being under the law and under sin, when he reads the law, he's thinking about the law, that's when sin's law starts to battle against it. It forms its troops. It lines its troops. It it fires its arsenal. It attacks his thinking to retake that territory so that it can tell Paul what he has to do. It can demand that he follows his law. So again, good rules, they cannot overcome this rule that's already happening to us. When, when you think about what Paul's describing, that we are ruled by sin, whenever Paul thinks about the law, God's law is the invader. What sin's doing is it's fighting off the encroachment of God's law. Every time it enters Paul's mind, then the sinful law is fighting back. And Paul says that it's successful. It takes him captive. So when he hears about the law, he wants to obey it, but sin battles against it, takes him captive, makes it so that he he sins. He doesn't obey. So that's why you can't just throw rules at our sin problem. If you think that the solution to when when I do what's wrong, the solution is I just need to be informed. We don't understand just how entrenched the problem is. We, we've really been fed this idea that humans are either inherently good or at least neutral. That's the idea that kind of runs in our world. So uh, the, the moral problem that we face, it's, it's really something that's external to us. Evil's out there. It's not in us. It's our environment, our upbringing, our, our influences. If we could put ourselves in the right situation and we know what to do, then we can do what's right. That's what we believe. Problems out there, what Paul's saying is the problem's actually deep within us. We're not the way that we should be. We're not neutral. 
We're not inherently good. We can't simply educate ourselves into doing what's right. That's not to say that we can't redirect ourselves. We can work with our sinful desires. There are ways that we could work with our sinful desires and establish a a way of life that's respectable, that's acceptable to the people around us. Counselors really can help us make changes that look good on the outside. That's true. Paul isn't arguing against that. He's not saying that's not possible because Paul did the same thing with the law when he was a Pharisee. He did the same thing. You remember how he described his life in Philippians 3? Philippians 3.60, he says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. So he'd figured out how to align his sinful desires with an external righteousness. He could look good. He could keep the law in that sense. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's referring to here is actually being able to do what God says in the law from the heart, the way that God intends. That's what he's saying is not possible in our present state. So we may think we're good. We genuinely may think that we're doing what's right, at least most of the time. When we get a glimpse of what God's law is really teaching, when we get the perspective that Paul has now that he, he knows Christ, he's been instructed by Christ about what the law was really getting at in internal righteousness, that perspective helps us see what he's getting at here with this plight of Jewish people in his day who wanted to use the law to be right, to be righteous. There's no hope of being righteous by obeying rules. That's what Paul gets at in these last two verses. These last two verses, he's contrasting these two situations. Very different responses he gives in verses 24 and 25. And what he's doing is he's showing that rules cannot provide ultimate hope for change. This is why good rules cannot produce good in the flesh ruled by sin. Rules cannot provide any ultimate hope for change to make us good. And and what he does is he's doing this deep dive into these circumstances that he was in while he was under the law and under sin. He sees this battle that was going on that he probably didn't even fully recognize at the time. But this battle was going on. He was constantly failing. And as he puts himself in that position, he cries out like media did in in Ovid's story. He cries out in despair. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So this this is a miserable situation that he's describing. This isn't just a normal thing that everybody goes through. Like, oh, well, you know, this is just the state we're in. This is miserable to know what's good To be able to see it, it's in reach, and to never be able to do it. You're close to good because the law shows you what's good. But it's wrenched away from you every time by this evil in you. It is a wretched, miserable state that he's describing in this passage. Notice, he doesn't ask what will deliver him. But who will deliver him. So he needs deliverance. He needs someone to rescue him. He can't escape these circumstances. that It's not that he can just apply his will to the situation now that he's in Christ. No, he's not talking about that. He needs to be rescued from this. He has no power over it. 
In his fleshly state, he's ruled by sin and death. In our natural state, we're trapped. We need an outside factor to rescue us. And it's not a what. It's not rules. It's not something inanimate. It's a who. It's a person. That's the solution to our problem. And Paul can't take it anymore. So he's been, he's been doing this kind of dialogue where he's been putting himself in a situation that he's not currently in. And he breaks out of that in verse 25. He can't, he can't hold it in anymore. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver him? He asked the question, God delivers him through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything's been in the singular up to this point. And he breaks out of that to include his audience, to remind them that they've been rescued from this. Jesus Christ, our Lord, delivered us by his death and resurrection. And so that's what he's talking about here. He's already mentioned that. We died with Christ. We were raised with Christ. So sin's power is still in that grave. And we were raised with Christ to to live new lives with him as our Lord. No longer with sin as our Lord. Now, we're going to see as chapter 8 continues that Sin still influences us. There's still an influence that remains. But this miserable situation is not ours. This is the old era that Paul's talking about. Serving the law of God with his mind, but with his flesh serving the law of sin. Under the old era, he served the law of God as revealed at Mount Sinai. Not talking about a generic law. This is the, the Mosaic law. But his flesh was dictating the whole time because it was dominated by sin, that he would not obey it. So the law offers no hope. Jesus is the only hope. So many view sin, really, in our world, we just think of sin as an event, just something you do. It's like this momentary thing. Oh, I messed up, that's a sin. Many don't recognize the deep effect that sin has on us. And this is the problem with any other attempt at addressing morality not taking into account that truth. So from a religious perspective, from different religions, people believe that the rules they're taught in their religion, that's enough, that's all they need to do what's good. Tell me what to do, and I can do it. I can be good. From a naturalistic perspective, good's just a construct that we make to organize our world. So we can figure out what to do. We're able to do that. In both cases, there's nothing deeply wrong with us. We can do what's best. We can do what's good. Even religions that try to base themselves on the Bible, like Judaism or like mainline Christianity, they have the assumption, hey, we're made in God's image. If God made us in his image to reflect his goodness, we should be able to do that. There's nothing inherently wrong with us. We should be able to meet God's expectations just by him telling us what they are. Paul discovered something else to be true. Something different than that idea. Something he hadn't even considered, it it seems, before that eventful trip on the road to Damascus. His mind was blown on the road to Damascus when he realized the truth. this, This idea that he discovered here, it's something Nicodemus hadn't seen before. He had that nighttime meeting with Jesus. Remember, in that meeting, Jesus told him, there's something you're missing. Something big that the law actually told you about. You need hearts that are circumcised. You need to be born again. You need a new life. 
You can't do that. There's nothing you can do to be born again. That's something God has to do to you. There's no human strategy that can make us right again. So God couldn't just send his son, the Messiah, the king, to stop all the bad rulers and to set up his kingdom so that we could then enjoy good rule. Because his kingdom is righteous. And it only permits the righteous to enter. And we're all sinners. So, we belong to a different kingdom from the start. One that's in opposition to God. None of us have the right to enter God's kingdom, to enjoy his kingdom. We belong to the enemy's kingdom. That's what we need to be, to be rescued from. That's why Jesus came. To rescue sinners from sin's reign. So Jesus came as the perfect image bearer. He perfectly reflected his father's goodness. He showed us exactly what it looks like to be a good human. He didn't do that, though, just to provide some ideal to strive after. He did it because we wouldn't do it. And that we couldn't do it. Not on our own. So, he obeyed. He deserved to enter God's kingdom, to enjoy God's kingdom. He deserved that, and yet, he took on a punishment that we deserve. So, Jesus came so that through his death, he could sever sin's power over us. For all who trust in him. He was a perfect substitute. His, he gave his life, on the one hand, to conquer sin. And then to give us his reward by faith in him. So if you look at this passage and you hear the turmoil that's going on and you see that's me, I hear the good things that I'm supposed to do and then I don't do them. Understand that this picture, it's true. It's true all of us when we're not trusting in Jesus. We need to Look to Jesus. You need to look to Jesus to recognize the only way out of that situation, the only solution to that situation is not by doing something, some good, some following, some human strategy. Jesus is the only way out. You need to depend on him completely. Look to him as your rescuer. He's the solution. So there's not any solution in self-improvement, not, not a solution in rules. Good rules cannot produce good in a flesh ruled by sin. Those rules, they can help us recognize that those rules are good, but they also help us recognize that we are not good. And they are incapable of overcoming what rules in us already. And even the best rules, even God's rules himself, they cannot provide ultimate hope for change. The solution, it's not rules. It's not even the law. It's not listening to God's commands. The solution is a person. So when you recognize your sin and you don't want to do it, you turn to Jesus as your, your new master. He is able to transform you. Now when Jesus is Lord, when he's your Lord, he's rescued you from the punishment of sin. He's rescued you from the power of sin that Paul talks about here. But he hasn't yet delivered you from the, the presence of sin. 
So our flesh is still at work in us, and he's going to talk more about that. But we need to consider that side of this passage. So what I want us to think, though, as we look at this passage, we should not think, well, I do fail with sin, but so did Paul. We shouldn't find any comfort if this passage describes us. On the one hand, because I don't think this is actually a reference to a believer, we will struggle. We do struggle over sin. But Paul said in Romans 6.14, sin will not rule over you. Secondly, Paul describes this as a wretched state. This is not just some normal state that we should say, oh, you know what? Look, Paul went through it. That's just life as a Christian. It's a wretched state. This is not any, there's not any comfort in this passage that your life looks like this. It's a terrible, miserable state to live in failure to sin. So if you find yourself knowing that something's wrong, you're, you're doing the things that you don't want to do, and you profess faith in Jesus, there is a solution to that. You look to Jesus. You look to what he's done for you. You dwell on that truth. That sin's rule through Jesus' death has been abolished in your life. It does not control you anymore. It's not in charge. You don't submit to the law of sin. You now submit to the law of Christ. So Even when we listen to sin, this state of being slaves to sin is not ours anymore. We were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Our slavery came to an end. So there are no excuses in this passage. If you ever look to this passage and find an excuse and find a, a, a sense of, I feel a little bit better about the fact that I'm failing now. You're looking at the passage wrong. That's not what it's telling us. Jesus killed Mr. Hyde's control over us. We can still listen to Mr. Hyde, but he's not in charge anymore. Now, there's another application I think we should consider. And it relates to a lawsuit against Meta right now. On Thursday, Al Mohler mentioned in the briefing that 41 states have filed a suit against Meta. It's the parent company for Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Messenger. The claim of the lawsuit is that Meta knowingly used features on its platform to cause children to use them compulsively, even as the company said that its social media sites were safe for young children or young people. And that Meta has harnessed powerful and unprecedented technologies to entice, engage, and ultimately ensnare youth and teens. Now, interesting thing with this is, is addressing this lawsuit, there's a, an article in the New York Times that asks the question, is social media addictive? And it's asking that question to think through some implications with this, this lawsuit. What I thought was helpful was Moeller posed this insightful question in response to the article. He asked, why would it matter to us that the word addictive would apply or not? See, Christians have been sucked into a particular way of looking at our problems. Now, Moeller was not saying that there was nothing going on that that couldn't be analyzed from a medical perspective as addictive. That's not really what he's addressing. But he is saying that there's a larger issue beyond any sense of possible addiction. There's a moral issue that's going on with social media. 
that we can't simply blame on an addiction. He went on to say, frankly, in whatever case addiction may apply, it is not completely independent of moral concerns. One of the false arguments of the modern age is that if you medicalize a problem, you remove all the moral imperatives, all the moral context, all the moral substance, even all the moral responsibility. The problem isn't our sinfulness, we could think. It's an addiction. Now, to whatever degree there is a truly medical addictive quality to something, there is still another issue that we can and must deal with, that we're responsible to deal with, and it's our sinful flesh. For the believer, it's not an excuse. We can't say, well, that's just my flesh. For the believer, we've been rescued from the power of sin. So even though we can be influenced, that's what we need to be attentive to. We need to recognize we can still be influenced by this powerful thing that's still a part of our lives. But the solution to that problem isn't a strategy. There's no human strategy that is the solution to the sin problem. The solution is a person. The solution is a Lord to whom we've submitted and to whom we must continue to turn from our sin and submit. And that's what I think this this passage directs us to. Join me in prayer. Father, we, we recognize that we will struggle with sin. And Paul's even going to go on to say that it's the power of the Spirit in us that is the power behind our even applying this kind of a response to this passage that we, we are free from sin, that we can act differently. It's not because of anything in us even still. It, it's the Spirit who is in us. It's your spirit that you've given us that's the power. And so I pray that even as we think about this passage, we think about the hope that we have in Jesus, in what you've done through your son, that we would not rely on our own strength even there. As we'll, we'll hear about later, we'll rely on the power of your spirit to act, to live out the fact that you've rescued us by your son, from the powerful mastery of sin in us, indwelling sin. You've rescued us decisively by your son's death and resurrection. Now your son is seated with you. He's Lord. We pray in the power of the Spirit that we would treat Him as Lord, not as our sinfulness. That though we do struggle with sin, we would not be defeated. We would not despair. We would not accept some wretched state for normal. That we would desire to know Christ more and more and reflect Him in the power of your Spirit. We do pray, though, for those that are still enslaved to sin. We ask for your spirit to awaken them to that truth. That your 
powerful good news about Jesus would transform their hearts that they would they would see the truth and turn from sin. Trust in Jesus to be their rescuer. Their solution. Though they will continue to struggle with sin as we all do, that they will find their hope in Him and see progress in Him by your Spirit. Ask all these things because of your amazing grace towards us in Christ. Amen.